Sunday school teachers, I'll come up during the last song and just let you guys know that we'll be transitioning back down for communion altogether. Okay, we're moving through the book of Ephesians. We're in the last two chapters. We're looking at Ephesians 5, verses 8 to 14. So if you have a Bible in front of you, open it up. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. But we believe while these are the words of Paul, they are also in a supernatural way guided and imbued with divine inspiration. And these are the words of God. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. And this is why it said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So the big picture of the book of Ephesians is chapters 1, 2, and 3. Paul is explaining to this early group of Christians what God has done for them and what they receive as a gift by placing themselves in Christ, by um, putting their faith in him. And then starting in chapters 4 and then 5 and 6, Paul moves towards that from, from that picture of what God has done for us to now how should we live in response to that. Now that you've become a Christian, how should you live into God's love and from God's forgiveness and from God's grace? And a commentator that I was reading this week said, it's really important to get that order right. right? We don't live in a certain way and then qualify to become Christians. What we do is we become Christians We receive God's grace and love and forgiveness. And then we learn from this new identity to live a certain kind of life. See, if if you did it the other way, if you said, I am going to learn to live a certain way, I'm going to be religious, going to be moral, I'm going to prove to God I'm worthy of becoming a Christian, then really what you'd be celebrating when we sang songs is how great I am, right? Look at how great I am. Look at all the things that I did to bring God my record of goodness and say, see, there you go, now, I, now you can verify me that I'm like a Christian, I belong in your club. But we don't sing those songs because we don't save ourselves. Regardless of how many good works and good deeds and how moral and how upstanding we think we are before God, we are saved as a result of placing our faith in Christ. We're saved by grace. Paul says in Ephesians, it's not from works. It's not from yourself so that you can't boast. We sing songs that boast about how great God is. God has saved us. God has redeemed us. God has given us a new identity. And now we learn to live a certain way of life that's pleasing to him. And in verses 8 to 14, Paul continues to explain to the Ephesians, this is what a life looks like that is lived to honor God. Now that you are Christians, this is how you should live. He says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light. Notice he doesn't say you were once in darkness, but now you're in light. So live in that light. He says, you once were darkness, and now you are light. It's, it's, a, much more, um, it's a much more powerful uh, truth, right? If, 
If I was just in darkness and now I'm in light, then what has changed is my external circumstances, right? I was in a dark room, now I'm in a light room, but I'm fundamentally the same. But Paul says, if that's the way you think about being a Christian, you don't understand what's happened. You were once darkness, you were in sin, and that was the fundamental nature of your identity before God. But now in Jesus, you are light. God has put a spirit within you. You have been changed from the inside out. You have an entirely new identity. You have been illuminated from the inside out by God's spirit. So the very nature of who you are, what Jesus has done for you, touches the very centrality, the deepest nature of your identity and personhood, and then begins to work out. It's not just something that's happened over here in your spiritual life or over here in a corner of what's considered your whole life. It's your whole life has been transformed. Now you're to understand that you are light and therefore live into that identity. Live who you are. Live as light. And the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Three words that Paul uses throughout his letter to the Ephesians, but in many of his letters to other churches. Goodness is a term that means, well, it's based on the root agathos, which means to be good or useful. And while it, it, while it can have overlap with the next term, righteousness, maybe I'll explain them both at the same time. So goodness uh, comes from the root that means good or useful, and righteousness comes from the Greek word diakosune, which refers to being just or justified before God or right before God. So while there's a bit of an overlap linguistically in terms of what they mean, generally when Paul talks about goodness, he means living in a way that other people, because of the way you live, find good or useful. You're living a productive life. You're bringing, you're being a blessing to other people. So it's a little bit more on the horizontal plane of living a life that blesses and helps other people and is useful to other people. And righteousness is living rightly before God, living in alignment with what God wants. So that kind of pulls in that vertical dimension. And then truth is from a word that really just means truth or even maybe more provocatively for us, reality. The fruit of being light if you understand that you are light and you are living in this world, the fruit of that will increasingly become goodness and righteousness or holiness and living into reality, living the truth, speaking the truth and living in a way that increasingly aligns with how God has created human beings to live and what God has for you in this world. Paul often uses the word good in his letters, uses it in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 4.29. He'll get to it in Ephesians 6.7, uh, chapter 6.8. <clears throat> Talks about righteousness a lot in Ephesians. Ephesians 4 happens again in Ephesians 6. He'll get to the breastplate of righteousness when he talks about the armor of God in Ephesians uh, 6.14. And then believers are to do what is true. So these are themes that he kind of cycles through throughout his letters to the Ephesians. Again, not as do these things and maybe God will love you. Do these things and maybe you'll be accepted. It's you are accepted. You are now light. This is how light behaves. These, this is how children of the light increasingly move into the world. One of the things that I've been really fascinated by at kind of a cultural level is the phenomenon of the stratospheric rise of Dr. Jordan Peterson uh, you might know Peterson, he's gotten, he's kind of controversial for different reasons. But <clears throat> one of the things that I find interesting, at least, is one of the themes that 
a lot of his talks and books cycles through is this push to assume responsibility for your life and to pursue what is meaningful instead of what is expedient, right? To do what is purposeful and meaningful and not just what is easy and what's kind of the low-hanging fruit in your life. And in many ways, if you listen to him long enough, you'll hear some of these themes of goodness and righteousness and truth come up again and again. Now, he's not a Christian, he's not a believer, but he has he really values what he would probably call a Judeo-Christian framework. And he wouldn't be one of those people who would want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. He would probably be a secularist, but he would say, I still see value in some of these teachings. And he certainly has a high regard for the Bible, at least as a human document. And one of the things that's interesting, as you listen to him, and he keeps hammering on this, these themes of goodness and, as he's understanding it, righteousness and truth, is that he has become more and more and more popular. Which is interesting because culturally, what often gets reinforced is things like goodness and righteousness and truth are, those are kind of cultural constructs. Who's to say, you know, you have your truth, I have my truth. Anyone who's speaking and claiming to have the truth is really, that's an imposition of power on other people, so we shouldn't talk about these things because they're necessarily exclusionary, right? If I say what I'm bringing you is the truth, I'm also saying maybe what you're saying is not the truth. That might hurt your feelings, that might offend you, that might cause your worldview to kind of begin to shake and rattle around. And yet, as Peterson has pushed out this message, it's become more and more popular. In a culture that seems to have deconstructed any notions of truth or goodness that lay claim to anyone, Peterson has struck a chord, even among secularists who maybe 10 years ago would have said something like, yeah, religion poisons everything. Just do what you want and don't hurt anybody and that's fine. I read and engage more and more people now who are saying, mm, I might have jumped the shark on that a little bit. Maybe Christianity and the Bible, I'm not sure if I'm a believer, but I think there are some things that I need to pay attention to, especially the challenge that emerges from the Bible as it relates to living goodness and righteousness and truth out into the world. More and more people, maybe, are becoming disenfranchised with kind of a thoroughly materialistic view of reality that says, you know what, when we talk about good and evil and right and wrong, <clears throat> we're basically just talking about matters of opinion that just emerge from our own cultural situatedness. More and more people are becoming uncomfortable with that presumption. And I find it encouraging that they're looking to push back against that narrative and say maybe there is, maybe our longing for goodness is because there's an ultimate good. Maybe, our, maybe we have this longing to, this drive, this impulse to want to sometimes do right because there's an ultimate rightness. Maybe we take truth seriously not because it's a matter of opinion, but because there is a capital T truth that is the foundation for all else that is genuine and real. <clears throat> Speaking of Peterson, I recently watched a two-hour discussion between him and Ben Shapiro. That's what I do for fun. I don't do Netflix. I just listen to debates and speakers. Uh, sometimes they're religious, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're more on the right side of the political or, uh, spectrum. Sometimes they're on the left. But I try and listen to interesting speakers, and this was a really good uh, discussion that moved through a whole bunch of topics. Peterson's a 
clinical psychologist from the University of Toronto. He's Canadian. Ben Shapiro is an Orthodox Jew and who's a conservative commentator out of the States, both pretty prominent. <clears throat> and at one point, it turned to the difference between Judaism and Christianity, which I kind of felt like was unfair because you had Ben, who was an Orthodox Jew, and Jordan Peterson, who wasn't a Christian, but he was kind of speaking for Christians. So I was kind of like, ugh, cringed a little bit. But um, there's some interesting things said, and you know, there were some redeemable elements of what uh, Peterson said as it relates to the importance of Christianity for our culture. But one of the things that just gutted me, I was like, oh, no, not again, is they, the host kind of threw out, so what's, what's the basic difference between Christianity and Judaism? And between both men, kind of the trope, this really tired, uh, recycled idea that got emphasized was, well, really when it comes down to it, Christianity is about your beliefs. It's about what you believe. And Judaism is about how you live. So Ben Shapiro said, I have a lot of respect for Christianity, but what I don't like about Christianity is that it, the message that it presents is basically all you have to do is believe in Jesus and your sins are forgiven. It doesn't matter how you live. And Judaism is much more about you can believe all kinds of weird, foolish things, but if you live a moral good life, that's what ultimately counts. And when I see something like that, I just want to like rip what's little left of my hair out because that kind of um, false choice, false dichotomy, that does not exist in the Bible. And it certainly doesn't exist if you're at all familiar and tracking with the book of Ephesians. Ephesians says, by choosing to place your faith, not just abstract belief, but I'm choosing to believe in someone. I'm choosing to put my faith in Christ. Yes, that is what saves me. But then when I do that, God, through his word and by his spirit, does put a very serious and compelling moral vision in front of me for my life. God's message isn't, did you just say the sinner's prayer? Now you're saved? Great. Okay, God bless. See you on the other side. It's now you were darkness, now you're light, and I'm going to teach you how to live as light. I have a purpose for you beyond just saving you in a, in a thin sense of making sure that you'll be with me forever. I now have a purpose for you in this world. And so what I'm going to do is gently but firmly move you into greater and greater alignment with what is true and what, what is right and what is good. The message of Ephesians could be summed up as you, in Christ, you're now light. So live into that identity. Live as light. And I think when you understand the Christian call from that place, then it really becomes something gripping and powerful. And Christianity does have a challenge to offer those who might think of it as little more than just say a prayer and be done with it. And then, again, if you want to be a keener, you can read your Bible and go to church, but you kind of don't really have to. Christianity offers a compelling vision that is continually challenging you and stretching your imagination and heart should be for the rest of your life as you follow Jesus. But not fueled by anxiety that if I don't do these things, uh-oh, God's not going to love me, God's not going to accept me. It's fueled now by a peace and a security that I am loved, I am accepted, I am a son or daughter of God, I am light, I'm secure in Christ. Now I get to live from that place of security. So when I make mistakes, when I act foolishly, when I go down a wrong road, I don't need to say, well, give up on the whole thing. I guess it's over now. 
No, I go to God, I seek forgiveness, I repent, and I keep moving forward. In verse 10, Paul says to the whole church, find out what pleases the Lord. Which, for some people, when I read that this week, I kind of thought, well, don't we kind of already know that, what pleases the Lord? Like, isn't that sort of like the point of the Bible, especially the New Testament? As Jesus comes and then these letters get written, it's pretty clear what God wants. So as long as we're paying attention to Scripture and seeking to obey it, will please the Lord. And that is definitely true. But there's also an element to which Scripture doesn't speak to every particularity that we might move through in our lives. And actually, if you look at a lot of the commands of Scripture, whether it's love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself, or bear one, another burden, bear one another's burdens, the commands are fairly general, and they still leave a lot of room open to explore, well, what does that mean, though? What does that look like? And might it look different in this cultural context versus this one, or in this, in this job site versus this one, or in my role as a parent, in my role as a spouse? One commentator said, there are situations in life that aren't directly addressed in Scripture. However, in such cases, what we need to do as Christians is define principles in Scripture and truths that might be able to help us make wise choices that please God. And so scriptures are consulted and then we ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten us and to show us and to guide us about how to fulfill this in the most, in a way that leads to the greatest uh, pleasing of God and blessing of our neighbor. And so we use the word of God, we, we pray about particular situations, right? Let's say we're facing a workplace conflict. There's just a lot of stress at work and there's stuff going on. There's, you know, you can say, okay, some principles are, okay, love God, I want to honor God, okay, I want to love my enemies, there's people at work, there's a lot of tension right now, I want to think, think through principles like forgiveness and serving, okay, but what's that going to look like, though? Like, those are principles, those are commands, but how do I make that real in my workplace this Monday? And that's what I think Paul is talking about here, to say, well, find out what pleases the Lord, seek him, take commands, take these truths, take this vision of goodness and righteousness and truth, and then seek to honor God and experiment and try different things. In Philippians 1.9, Paul encourages the Philippians to, to develop a kind of smart love. Not this naive love where it's like, I'm just going to love people. Okay, but what does that look like, though, in this particular situation? How do you love a family member who's antagonistic towards the faith? That's different than loving a family member who's very warm to Christianity. How do you love a coworker who is um, shirking responsibility at every turn and it's leading to all kinds of systemic problems for everybody else versus the coworker who is uh, maybe just not super competent at their job but has the ability to learn but maybe just doesn't realize they're not competent at what they're doing and that is leading to all kinds of problems. Those are different situations. You still want to love those people. You want to serve them. You want to seek to speak the truth and love to them. But what would it look like? What does pleasing the Lord look like in each of those particular circumstances? Uh, that's, you can't just flip to a part of the Bible where it says, oh, how do I deal with an incompetent coworker? Oh, second incompetence, 317. Great, thanks. It demands some digging and some reflection on our part. Philippians 1.9 says, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best 
and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And so to find out what pleases the Lord is, is trying to like put a finer point on the commands to love God and to love people, to love our enemies, to pray for other people. We should offer worship to God. So here's another example. We should offer, offer worship to God. But some churches offer musical worship in the styling of a cappella hymns. And others, like I threw up on Facebook this week, in Finland, they offer heavy metal worship, right? Both are pleasing to the Lord. Both have been sought as a way to say in our context for our people, as a way to witness to the world around us, what does it look like for us to please the Lord? They both landed it. We're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. Awesome. But the next level down is, but what's that going to look like when we gather on Sunday morning? And one church says a cappella hymns because of X, Y, and Z. Awesome. I think that pleases the Lord. Another church says heavy metal. They actually do the hymns, but they just play it to heavy metal. And uh, I, I think that's pleasing to the Lord, right? And I think what's neat about this is that it shows us that there's a lot of flexibility in terms of the Christian life. I love being a part of the Evangelical Covenant Church because one of our affirmations is freedom in Christ, that we recognize that God has called Christians in general to some of these broad uh, visionary principles, love God, love your neighbor, right? But... It, it recognizes that the way that's going to play out in your life is likely going to be the way different than it plays out in my life. And that's okay. I don't have, like Jeff, as your, I don't, as your pastor, I don't have to come up with, this is exactly how Christians talk, dress, what they're going to do for their recreation, how they're going to spend their money, how they're going to spend their time, drill down into the particularities and then give you that paper and say, if you were really faithful to Jesus, this is how you would structure your life. Like me. Right? That's idolatry. That's me idolizing my own walk with Christ and saying that's the model. And it's not. So while there are broad principles and there's going to be a huge amount of overlap and hopefully we're moving in the same direction, Christianity has this built-in flexibility to say, yeah, some people are going to turn left here as opposed to turning right. And some people are going to um, be more flexible in terms of here or there. And I think that that is a good thing. That allows Christianity to adapt to different cultural contexts. It gives breathing room to experiment in your life and to not get locked into habits and patterns where you're like, well, the, the way that I'm living the Christian life or this pattern, like that's the pattern. I mean, that's why I talk so consistently about loving God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is the principle, but then how I'm trying to challenge myself to grow in those habits with every month that goes by, right? How, every month I try and sit down and say, God, how are you challenging me to grow in my relationships, heart? How are you challenging me to grow in my prayer life, soul, and worship? How are you challenging me to grow in my understanding of the Bible and Christian worldview, mind? How are you challenging me to experiment with what it means to love you with all of my strength, the way that I serve people practically and give, learning to curb my own income so that I can give more and prioritize more to serving and helping other people and advancing your mission? I think a neat vision, I don't know if you're a New Year's resolution person. I don't know if you've already set them. Probably half of us have already failed them if we already set them. But if you're looking for, I think, a good prayerful resolution for 2019, it could be that. It could be, this is going to be a year where I'm going to find out what pleases the Lord. And I'm just going to make that a fun experiment in my life. I'm just going to find out what pleases the Lord. I'm going to take this passage of Ephesians. I'm going to think about it often. Maybe I'm going to memorize it. I'm going to meditate on it. This is going to be my word for the year. I'm going to pray through it. 
What would happen if all of us said, instead of just kind of moving through our regular pattern of obedience that we have now, as good as it is, we're going to take one or two areas of our life and say, God, what, what would really please you here? I'm not saying everyone else has to do this, but is there something specific you're calling me to do? Maybe among my friendships this year or within the sphere of my hobbies. God, what would please you as it relates to my finances or lifestyle this year? What would please you in terms of my job or how I participate in sports this year or how I approach my family or school or just life responsibilities in general? What would please you, God, in terms of how I engage my marriage? How about my involvement in this church? How about my own health and well-being? God, what would please you in terms of me pursuing you on a serious personal level of intentionality? What would please you this year, God? I think that's a good question to ask. That's a good framing kind of meditative question to chew over again and again as you move through 2019. Verse 11, Paul says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Uh, I'll get sort of personal here. One of the things that I have learned over the course of my 30s, and it, it kind of escalates the, the older I get now that I'm into my 40s, is that I have a hard time telling people the truth. And <clears throat> one of the, there's all kinds of reasons for that. But I am very uncomfortable with the conflict that telling the truth often plants in your life, kind of puts right on your front, front porch. I'm much more comfortable with saying things and doing things that are perceived by other people as being nice and kind so that they walk away and their experience of me is, oh, Jeff's a nice guy, like Jeff. I don't rock the boat. I try not to rock the boat. But the older I get, the more I recognize how dangerous that is on different level, through different levels of my life. I've been thinking a lot lately about how if you do commit yourself to being truthful, to speaking the truth in love, then one of the things that that does is that it does expose darkness in the world and in other people's lives. Either through example, by living the truth, or through your words, by speaking the truth. You can't, you can't be truthful and constantly affirming and nice towards everyone and everything. I wish you could. I wish I could. It's just not true. You just can't do it. And the reason is because for people who love the darkness and people who want to be okay with darkness in their life, you telling or living the truth will always be received as threatening. It will always be received as a threat. No matter how carefully you craft speaking or living into the truth, as carefully you try not to step on toes by simply living into and speaking the truth, you will come across as a threat to some people. And the temptation when that happens in my heart is to, ooh, to recognize that this is something that maybe I need to not push. So I retract from truthfulness. I don't necessarily lie but I stop being as truthful as maybe I could be or should be in relationships, um, whether they're close or more proximal. It's easy, it, it's tempting every Sunday to get up here and say, hey, 
you know, I write my sermon, I pray through it, I go through it, and there are times where I underline certain sentences and I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I should say that. Right, what if it strikes people the wrong way? I think it's truthful, but I would really prefer people at the end of the sermon to be like, oh, that was a really nice sermon, Pastor, thank you. I don't want people to be angry at me or upset at me. I want to attract people. But the question is, at what cost, though? What's the cost of living into that kind of careful articulation of half-truths? And half-truths are always half-lies, right? And I realized, you know, part of this comes from my own family culture where not rocking the boat and being nice and not saying things that even could have hold the potential to be a bit of a bomb for other people just don't do that. Like, just kind of keep it to yourself and be polite. Polite and nice were kind of two sides of the same coin. And I just realized now that's not good. There's many situations where that's not right. It's obviously not truthful much of the time. So I'm having to learn courage. I'm realizing I can't be a faithful Christian. I can't be a faithful pastor by speaking what other people want to hear in, lo- uh, in love, right? I need to learn to speak the truth in love. And the truth graciously spoken, always should be graciously spoken, that must be given a priority into how I live and how I talk. But that's hard because one of the lessons, if you haven't learned it, you will, is that if you speak the truth, then it will cost you something. It'll cost you maybe a relationship, might cost you money, might cost you your job, might cost you... um, a season of relative peace within your marriage might cost you an opportunity that you know if you just would have shut up and kind of gone along with things, that opportunity probably would have come your way. And so in learning to speak the truth, one of the truths that I've had to grapple with is that if I'm going to be a truth teller, I have to let go of the outcome. I have to. So in that sense, speaking truth is such an act of faith because you can't control the outcome. You have to, as graciously as you can, say, I think this is the truth that I'm convicted of and convinced of and that I want to share with you. And that might be received well. People might admire you for that. And other people might say, who the heck do you think you are? They might flip the table. They might bring, they might slander you. Who knows? But speaking the truth is always an act of faith because you're, you're ultimately saying, God, I'm going to speak the truth. If I'm wrong, show me through the other person or through something else. And if I'm right, then vindicate me if this truth isn't well received because it might not be well received. And that's why, you know, to quote Peterson again, he's, he's fond of saying, the truth is dangerous. And it's way more easy to lean into speaking and living in ways that are nice and polite. And it's not bad to be nice. It's not wrong to be polite. I don't want anyone to hear that. I'm just saying the call to truthfulness as a Christian is a call to live dangerously because you're bringing your convictions to bear in the world. And there are people who love the darkness and not the light, and they're not going to take kindly to it. In the, easy, in the kind of the best case scenario, they're convicted. Often they'll just ignore you and walk away and sever ties or distance themselves. And in other ways, they'll lash out towards you. There's a price to pay 
if you tell the truth. But I'm learning that there's also a price to pay if you don't tell the truth. So you're always paying a price. And the question is, what do you want to be paying a price for? Would you rather be paying a price to speak the truth humbly, not saying everything I'm saying is true, but to say this is my conviction and willing to be corrected, but are you willing to pay that price or the price that comes from however well-intended I frame it? I understand when I'm not speaking the truth, I'm just living into greater and greater disintegration, lack of integrity, and I'm living in, and the reason why I'm doing it is not really to be nice to other people. It's because I'm, I'm giving into cowardice in my own heart. And there's a price to pay for cowardice. Maybe not in the short term, but in the long term there is. As you move increasingly away from being truthful in how you present yourself to the world and instead constantly hedging and anticipating and giving people what you think they want to hear, there's a real sickness of the soul that emerges. So recognize that as a truth teller, you're going to expose darkness. You're going to expose darkness in your own heart when you tell the truth. You're going to expose the darkness in the world when you tell the truth. And that will be difficult. And that'll have a price. That'll have consequence. But you will feel stronger and more integrated if you learn to tell the truth. Verse 12, it's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And this is why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I just want to focus on that last verse in closing. This phrase actually is a quote. It doesn't come from anywhere in the rest of the, you know, what would have been the Old Testament, their Bibles at the time. Closest you kind of get is Isaiah 26, 19, that reads, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. So there's kind of some themes there of waking up and rising up and, and, and light shining. But m- most commentators believe that this quote, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, is in reference to a baptismal hymn that probably would have been used by the early church. Likely part of a song or maybe a pronouncement that would have been shouted or sung over anyone who got baptized, right? Someone gets baptized, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And again, it's pointing to this theological truth that our former condition in sin was really graphically described as being um, darkness and being asleep and being held under the power of sin and death. And now in Christ, we can wake up to our true humanity, to our true vision for life and for eternity. You don't have to sleepwalk through life any longer just understanding life on simply a materialistic level. Something much bigger and much more important is going on in life and through your life. And Christ rescues us into a new vision for life. Conversion is nothing, nothing less than awakening out of sleep, rising from death and being brought out of darkness into the light who is Christ. No wonder we're summoned to live a life of consequence. Again, you can't get to a verse like this and then say, yeah, kind of at the end of the day, Christianity, as long as you believe the sinner's prayer, you can kind of live however you want and just, it's fine. Wake up, sleeper. 
Where are we asleep at the wheel when it comes to our faith as we move into 2019? Where have we become dull to the gripping rescue that God has wrought in us? Have we become bored with a divine vision to live into goodness and righteousness and truth? Where do we need the Holy Spirit to bring about a revolution in our own hearts so that we once again have a fire to find out what pleases the Lord with our whole lives? Wake up, sleepers. Rise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. God, as we prepare for communion, as we worship, we give you thanks that you are light. God, teach us to live as children of light, rejecting the deeds of darkness, to press further into goodness and righteousness and truth from a place of grace and forgiveness in you, God. Give us a vision for our lives. Show us each this morning, today, this week, in a particular way, what it might look like to please you so that our obedience isn't just dry and disconnected and kind of just a a moving through and moving over in a mechanical way of our days and weeks. Give us a, a, put a fire in our bellies to seek you and to please you and to bring honor and glory to your name this year. In Jesus' name, amen.